When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I look at every Prime Minister from Sir John A. Macdonald all the way up to Justin Trudeau. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, Pucks and Cups and Canadian History X, available on all podcast platforms. We have gone through nine Prime Ministers so far, all of whom have had a large impact on Canada. Few, though, have had an impact as large as our longest-serving Prime Minister, William Lyne Mackenzie King. He may have had a long history as Prime Minister, and is arguably the most important Prime Minister of the first half of the 20th century, but he was not a captivating man, or had legendary speeches that inspired Canadians. As a result, despite his long role as leader, Canadians are often indifferent to his time in office. Now it's time to buckle up, because it's going to be a long episode. William Lyon Mackenzie King was born on December 17, 1874, in Berlin, Ontario, now known as Kitchener, to parents John King and Isabella Grace Mackenzie. The grandson of William Lyon Mackenzie on his mother's side, whom he's named after, his grandfather was the first mayor of Toronto, a member of the Legislative Assembly, and a leader in the rebellions of 1837. His mother was actually born while Mackenzie was in exile because of the rebellion, and she would eventually teach her son that it was his destiny to vindicate his grandfather. King's father, John, was a lawyer who operated a practice that was always struggling. The family never had financial security, but his parents lived a life with servants and tutors that they could barely afford. As a young man, King would play football playing for the Berlin High School Boys, who won a championship in 1885. King was also known to get into fights with other players on other teams. King would attend the University of Toronto along with Arthur Meehan, graduating in 1895. He then went on to study economics at Chicago and Harvard, excelling academically. In all, King earned five degrees, including a BA, an LLB, and an MA at the University of Toronto between 1895 and 1897. At the University of Toronto, he would initiate a student's strike in 1895 and worked closely with Vice Chancellor William Mullock behind the scenes. While the strike failed to meet its objective, which was to get William Dale, a popular professor, his job back, King did earn political points with the Vice Chancellor, who would hire him in only a few years' time. After he finished school, he began to travel touring through England and Germany before coming back to North America and staying in Chicago, living at Hull House owned by Jane Addams, a leading advocate of women's suffrage, social work and world peace. King then went to London where he began to engage in social settlement work that would influence him later in his life. It is believed his time working in social settlement would push him to have an interest in the workers and industry. By 1900, when he was 24, King had been offered an academic post at Harvard, but he chose to turn it down and instead pursued civil service as the Deputy Minister of Labour in the new Department of Labour. 
1901, King would suffer a terrible tragedy when his roommate and best friend, Henry Albert Harper, died saving a woman who fell through the ice on the Ottawa River. King would lead the effort to raise memorial to his friend, which would result in the Sir Galahad statue on Parliament Hill in 1905. One year later, King published a memoir of his friend called The Secret of Heroism. In his role in the Department of Labor, he was active in several matters including Japanese immigration, railways, and creating the Industrial Disputes Investigations Act of 1907 that sought to avert strikes through prior conciliation. It was here he showed a good capacity for reconciling industrial disputes and would gain him the attention of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, the Prime Minister at the time. King established himself as an excellent negotiator in labour issues. In 1906, he was sent to Lethbridge to deal with a coal strike, which would have caused many in the West to go without heat in the winter. He negotiated a settlement, and his experience with that influenced him to create the aforementioned Industrial Disputes Investigations Act. Other royal commissions that dealt with industrial conflicts he served on included the Bell Telephone Strike in Toronto in 1907 and the Cotton Industry Strike in Quebec in 1908. In 1909, Harvard granted King a PhD for his dissertation on Oriental Immigration to Canada. This was a report he had written for the Department of Labour the year previous. In the report, he stated, quote, that Canada should desire to restrict immigration from the Orient is regarded as natural. That Canada should remain a white man's country is believed to not only be desirable for economic and social reasons, but highly necessary on political and national grounds. King would also state regarding the Chinese head tax, saying it was not used for revenue, stating, quote, The tax, however, has been imposed not with the object, but to effect the restriction of a certain class without going the length of exclusion. As the number paying the tax increased, it became a considerable revenue, but the tax was never intended as revenue. This view would influence King later in his role as Prime Minister, as we will see. As Deputy Minister, he would convey concerns to President Theodore Roosevelt in England about the issue of Japanese immigration to North America. But with his PhD, King became, and still is, the only Prime Minister to have a PhD. By this point, King was doing well enough in gaining a name for himself that he was able to pay off his father's debts and provided his mother with money for clothes and housekeeping expenses. During this time, King was also known to be emotional in nature and quick to make life-altering decisions, although he had the appearance of prudence and modesty to those around him. It was that nature to make quick decisions that would result in him suddenly resigning from the civil service and running for election in the House of Commons. He did so in the riding of North Waterloo, which was a conservative stronghold and had been since 1896. Nonetheless, it was his home riding and it was where he ran. Amazingly, he was elected, and he would serve in the House of Commons as a Liberal, eventually earning the post of First Minister of Labour and implemented two acts that would improve the financial situation for millions of Canadian workers. That same year, he lost his seat in the 1911 election as the Conservatives came back into power. For the next three years, King worked on Liberal Party publicity and continued to attempt to get back into Parliament. In 1914, he began to investigate industrial relations in the United States for the Rockefeller Foundation, resulting in the release of Industry and Humanity in 1918. During this time, the First World War was raging, and while King was not a pacifist, he did not show enthusiasm for the war effort, and many felt he should have joined the war effort rather than work for the Rockefellers. In King's defense, 
he was almost 40 and not in great physical condition. In 1917, he ran for the House of Commons again in North York, and again lost due to the unpopularity of the Liberals at the time. In the 1911 election, he had lost by only 300 votes, but in 1917, he lost by 1,000. The loss was especially difficult as his mother was on her deathbed during the campaign, and she told him to stay on the campaign trail. He did, but she died before he could return. And this would haunt him for the rest of his life and likely played a big role in his interest in spiritualism, which I will get to later. At this point, King's personal life was having difficulties. He was an eligible bachelor, and he was focusing more and more on his family. His sister died in 1915, followed by his father in 1916. His mother became more demanding of his time, and King was devoted to her. With her death, he felt deeply alone. And it is no exaggeration to say that King cared deeply for his mother. On her 74th birthday, as reported, he gave her 74 kisses. In his diary, he would write, quote, I have met no woman so true and lovely a woman in every way as my mother. In 1924, when he received a six-month-old Irish terrier puppy, he named it Pat and doted on the dog. He would read to him, share his nighttime meal of cookies and Ovaltine, and in time, he interpreted the dog as being inhabited by the spirit of his mother. When the dog's health failed in 1940, King postponed a wartime cabinet meeting, and he sang, safe in the arms of Jesus, to him as he died. I, I, I wish I could tell you what it means to me that to have my, my little friend of 17 years uh, preserved in, in bronze uh, as a record of our uh, close association through the greater part of my leadership uh, of the party. None of you can begin to know what it means uh, to, to have a, a close association such as I have had with this little, as I had with this little Irish terrier uh, over, over 17 years. 17 years today. Uh, I, 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 I would like to recall some of the, uh, some of the lessons that he has taught me uh, in the matter of fidelity. Uh, if I have been true to some of the great causes that I have sought to remain true to, it's been the example of that little fellow that has helped in many, many ways. What it has meant after coming home from the House of Commons to have him at the, at the front door waiting, waiting just to greet one when one came in. And he seemed to have an instinct for politics. He always knew when there'd been a fight on. <laughs> I, I could tell whether everything had gone well or if it hadn't by the rapid movement of his tail and the extent to which he would jump up and down on those occasions. But what impressed me so much was the fact that when he, as he aged little by little, uh, no longer able to come downstairs, he'd be waiting at the top of the stairs. And then after, when he wasn't able to come to the top of the stairs on each occasion, I would find him in his little basket, wide awake, but waiting just to have a word of good night. And uh, finally, when I had to leave him uh, to make a, a tour out to the Canadian West, and was away for several days or several weeks, I made him promise that uh, no matter how hard the struggle would be, he'd stick it out until I got back. Well, I got back one morning and it was the afternoon before I saw him. When uh, I came 
here where he was, the little chap rose up on his feet, wagged his tail, and then he finally collapsed. And I took him in my arms, and he went to sleep, and slept a hearty, hearty sleep for hours. Then he lasted on a little longer, and finally we said goodbye. But I, if I ever falter in my duty, in the matter of continuing as I should, do what may be expected of me, it won't be the fault of my little friend, Pat. Now... Going back to politics, while many English-speaking liberals defected to the Union government over the conscription issue, King stayed loyal by Laurier's side. As a result, King was chosen to be the new leader of the Liberal Party after the death of Laurier. It wasn't just his loyalty to Laurier that earned him the top job in the party. King, for his faults, was a brilliant politician, and while many felt that he was an outsider with a weak base facing a country that was split over many issues, King campaigned in the party on the legacy of Laurier, championing labour interests, calling for welfare reform, and being a strong opposition to the Conservatives. This allowed him to be elected leader, defeating four other rivals on the first ballot. What was your first encounter with Mr. King? Well, actually, I, I can't quite remember my very first encounter because I was a very small child. But I do remember having to sit on his knee at one point, which I didn't like much. <laughs> But, um, How old were you then? I don't know. I think I must have been about three or four. We used to come over to our cottage a great deal, especially in Sunday evenings, to sing hymns. Oh, what were your <laughs> favorite hymns? Well, the one I particularly remember was Unto the Hills Around. He used to come every Sunday night, and uh, I at the time got a little bored with singing hymns every Sunday night. <laughs> so I remember one time I hid the hymn books. And, <laughs> He came over and the hymn books wouldn't be found anywhere. And so I, um, so finally then he said, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. I know them all off the heart anyway. So we <laughs> went over to the veranda and sang them all anyway. <laughs> but he was, uh, I remember the night that he was made um, liberal leader. I think it was in August. It was, uh, anyway, I, I think it was, uh, yeah. And he was, uh, we were all sitting on the veranda, which was in the front facing the lake, and Mr. King came through from the back and, he just said quietly, you know, I could still see him sort of standing there and saying, I've just been made liberal leader, and I have nobody to share it with. It seemed rather sad, and I think that was why he missed having a family at times like that. King was not coming into the leader's position at a time of strength for the party. The First World War and conscription had deeply divided the party with some members forming the Union Party with the Conservatives. In addition, the base of the party in the West was losing ground to the new party of the Progressives. King embraced the Prairies, though, which was growing quickly due to immigration. In 1919, soon after becoming leader, Joseph Reed died in the Prince Riding of Prince Edward Island, so a by-election was held, and King was acclaimed, and finally returned to the House of Commons. In the 1921 election, King and the Liberals won a slight majority, making King the 10th Prime Minister of Canada. King immediately got down to work as leader of the country, working to regain the confidence of the farmers in Ontario and Western Canada who had been hurt by the Conservative tariff policies and the conscription crisis. It was hoped that he could get more support from the farmers to limit the power of the new Progressive Party, and despite a reduction in tariffs and freight rates, it was just not enough. 
1922, the Shanak crisis erupted in Turkey, and there was an expectation in Britain that if they went to war, Canada would follow them automatically. King, even though the British Prime Minister appealed directly, stated that the Canadian Parliament would decide what policy to follow, not London. The issue eventually de-escalated without the need for war. In 1923, King would work out a treaty with the Americans regarding fishing rights in the North Pacific Ocean. Called the Halibut Treaty, it was the first treaty to be independently negotiated and signed by the Canadian government. The British did want to co-sign, but King insisted that it was a matter that only concerned the United States and Canada. One unfortunate bill passed by the King government dealt with the Chinese head tax. Established in 1885 by Sir John A. Macdonald and called the Chinese Immigration Act, its goal was to prevent immigrants from China by charging each immigrant $50. Under the governments of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, that amount increased to $100 in 1900 and $500 in 1903. In 1923, the King government abolished the head tax. But before you think that this meant Chinese immigration was open again, think again. The Chinese Exclusion Act was soon passed, closing the doors on Chinese immigration almost completely, and it would not be until 1947 that the act would finally be repealed. In the 1925 election, Arthur Meehan and the Conservatives would win 115 seats after their stunning election collapse only four years previous. King and the Liberals finished with 100 seats, but King was able to hold on to power as Prime Minister despite losing the election through an alliance with the Progressives. Unfortunately, a corruption scandal related to misdeeds in King's first term around the expansion of a canal in Quebec was hurting the image of the Liberal Party, and there was danger that the Progressive Party would withdraw their support because of this scandal. And then in his second term, another corruption scandal erupted, this time in the Department of Customs, further hurting the Liberals' image in Canada. That scandal had occurred when collusion was found between smugglers and members of the department to run goods into Canada from the United States. In order to trigger an election and hopefully gain more seats, King asked Governor General Lloyd Bing to dissolve Parliament. Bing refused, feeling that there had already been an election the previous year in 1925. King soon resigned, and King would write in his diary on June 27, 1926, quote, me and two will fall heir to some difficult situations. Western promises, if he seeks to carry on, I believe he will not go far. Our chances of winning out in a general election are good. I feel I am right, and I am happy. May God guide me in every step. Arthur Meehan was called upon to form a new conservative government, which he did. Unfortunately for Meehan, that government only lasted a very short time before an election was triggered. I covered the Bing-King affair in more detail in the previous episode on Mian, but essentially after Bing asked Mian to form the government, he had too few seats to hold it, and that election was triggered. In that election, King campaigned on the unconstitutionality of Mian's government. King pushed the image that the Conservatives were preventing Canadians from governing themselves, being influenced by the Crown instead. King and the Liberals were able to steal votes away from the Progressives as well, picking up 116 seats while the Liberals fell to 91. The 1920s were remembered as the Roaring Twenties, but King and his Liberals did not spend carelessly despite the good financial times. Instead, they reduced the federal debt, and they also implemented an old-age pension scheme. King wanted Canada to be autonomous from the United Kingdom. 
1926 at the Imperial Conference, he contributed to the definition of Dominion status in the Balfour Report. From that point, British Dominions were defined as autonomous and equal members of the British Commonwealth of Nations. For King, this was a victory as he felt loyalty to England, but he wanted sovereignty for Canada. It also meant that the Governor-General was no longer representing the British government, but the British monarch instead. In his technically third term as Prime Minister, King expanded on the Department of External Affairs to give Canada more independence from England. This meant that Canada did not rely on British diplomats who had loyalty first to England. King also recruited excellent diplomats into the department, including future Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson. In 1930, only a few months after the person's case was resolved, King would appoint Corrine Wilson as the first female senator in Canadian history. That same year, he would also increase the powers of the provincial governments by transferring the ownership of Crown lands to Manitoba, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. The good times would not last for King, nor for many others. With the stock market crash of 1929, the Great Depression would soon begin. King, according to his diary, did not feel the Depression would impact Canada greatly. As a result, he refused to provide federal funds to provinces that were struggling with rising unemployment. In a quote that would sink him, he said he would not give a five-cent piece to the Conservative provincial governments. The opposition quickly used this in the election campaign, which seriously hurt the Liberals nationwide. This would prove disastrous as the Conservatives under R.B. Bennett promised aggressive action. And then in the 1930 election, the Liberals lost 27 seats, falling into official opposition status, while R.B. Bennett and the Conservatives roared back with 135 seats, 44 more than the last election. Ironically, losing when he did likely ensured the long-term career of King, saving him from a lot of the early criticism that hit Bennett during the Depression. As the leader of the opposition, King continually attacked Bennett for not fulfilling his promises and for the rising unemployment problem. Throughout those five years in opposition, King gave the impression of sympathy for liberal and progressive causes, but he did not approve of the New Deal program put forward by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Thanks to the dislike of Bennett among the unemployed in Canada, the election was an overwhelming victory for the Liberals, who picked up 83 seats to finish with 171, while the Conservatives collapsed, losing 95 seats, falling to 39. I am leaving this afternoon for the Maritime Provinces and Quebec. I hope to visit shortly after the Prairie Provinces and British Columbia. If all goes well as I hope it may, I will be back in Ontario toward the end of October. I propose to conclude the campaign in the Liberal interests in our capital city on the evening of October the 12th. I have only one wish with respect to the general elections. It is a wish which I believe you will all share. It is that the general elections may hasten the day when there will be employment for all, when labor may be duly honored and receive its due reward, when a man's worth will be reckoned higher than the price which is paid for the things which he fashions with his hand or his brain, when human personality will be regarded of greater concern than wealth or property or power, however great, and when science may serve not destruction or war or private gain, but the ends of preservation and peace and the common good. This would be the first time King, now in his fourth term, would have an undisputed majority government. 
Soon after the election win, King would sum up his governmental policy as, quote, It was what we prevent, rather than what we do, that counts most in government. In October 1935, King would visit Queenston and see the poor state of his grandfather's residence and print shop. He would write in his diary, quote, It was a deeply impressive sight. I felt I walked about where grandfather began his great battle for political liberty in Canada. The stone near the building carries the words the House of William Mackenzie, the birthplace of responsible government in Canada. What could be finer than this? I felt pride beyond words. I feel continually the injustice done by Mackenzie's memory and the need to give it its true place in history. King would have his grandfather's home refurbished and three years later visited it once again in a much better state. With a strong majority, King would negotiate a new trade agreement with the United States in 1935 and with the United States and England in 1938. The Great Depression still raged on, causing a rising amount of relief costs and no clear plan to clear up the economy, though. Luckily for King, the worst of the Depression happened prior to the Liberals returning to power. And during his term, he would bring in several Canadian institutions that changed Canada forever. In 1936, his government established the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. In 1937, TransCanada Airlines, which would become Air Canada, was established, followed by the National Film Board of Canada in 1939. In 1936, King was losing patience with the premiers of the Western provinces, who came from parties such as the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation and Social Credit, and King would say that the West was, quote, part of the U.S. desert area. I doubt if it will ever be of any real use again. As a result, King focused on the industrial regions of Ontario and Quebec instead. He was also highly resistant to federal relief for the unemployed, only eventually accepting a solution that involved federal deficit spending, housing market subsidies, and tax cuts. In 1937, he would bring in some programs including the Federal Home Improvement Plan, that provided subsidized rates on interest on rehabilitation to 66,900 homes. In 1938, the Federal Unemployment and Agricultural Assistance Act was created, followed by the Youth Training Act in 1939. At the same time, Nazi Germany was rising in power, and King expressed a hope that war with Germany would be averted through appeasement. King would meet with Adolf Hitler in Berlin on June 29, 1937. In his diary, he wrote that Hitler was, quote, one who truly loves his fellow man. The two men discussed many topics, but King did not bring up the anti-Jewish policies during the meeting. One reason for this may have been the widespread discrimination against Jews in Canada. At the time, Canada's immigration policy was influenced by severe anti-Semitic views, and King saw Hitler as a man who had good and evil struggling within him. But King believed that good would win and Hitler would redeem his people. While Canada did have anti-Semitic views when it came to immigration, King would write in his diary, quote, The world will yet come to see the very great man mystic in Hitler. I cannot abide Nazism, the regimentation, cruelty, oppression of Jews, attitudes towards religion, etc., but Hitler will rank some day with Joan of Arc among the deliverers of his people. King would tell British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain that Canada would go to war if Britain were attacked, but not if Britain became involved in a continental war without provocation. Hitler assured King that Germany had no desire for war, but world events quickly displayed to King that this was not the case. And King, knowing that war was coming, insisted that the Canadian Parliament would decide if Canada joined the war, not the British government. 
the views of Hitler could be influenced by King's admiration for the German people. On September 25, 1897, King wrote an article for the Daily Mail and Empire that praised the Germans in Toronto, saying, quote, They are very decidedly law-abiding people. During the year 1896, the total number of German offenders apprehended or summoned by the city police did not exceed 80, and this number would be even less did it not include some cases of repetition of offences by the same individuals. After praising their membership in trade unions, he continues, quote, These facts are sufficient to show that the German element in Toronto is a most desirable one, and it is natural, therefore, to inquire what probability there is in augmentation to these numbers. In June of 1939, the MS St. Louis was denied entry into Canada. Carrying 900 Jewish refugees, most would wind up back in Europe, and over 200 would die in the Holocaust. When Britain did declare war on Germany, the Canadian Parliament was recalled in an emergency session and would vote to go to war. On September 8, 1939, two days before Canada declared war on Germany, King would say to the House of Commons, quote, I never dreamed that the day would come when, after spending a lifetime in a continuous effort to promote and to preserve peace and goodwill in international as well as industrial relations, it would fall to my lot to be the one to lead this Dominion of Canada into a great war. But that responsibility I assume with a sense of being true to the very blood that is in my veins. I assume it in the defense of freedom, the freedom of my fellow countrymen, the freedom of those whose lives are unprotected in other countries the freedom of mankind itself. For months, indeed for years, the shadow of impending conflict in Europe has been ever-present. Through these troubled years, no stone has been left unturned, no road unexplored in the patient search for peace. Unhappily for the world, Herr Hitler and the Nazi regime in Germany have persisted in their attempt to extend their control over other peoples and countries and to pursue their aggressive designs in wanton disregard of all treaty obligations and peaceful methods of adjusting international disputes. They have had resort increasingly to agencies of deception, terrorism, and violence. It is this reliance upon force, this lust for conquest, this determination to dominate throughout the world, which is the real cause of the war that today threatens the freedom of mankind. The fate of a single city, the preservation of the independence of a particular nation, are the occasion, not the real cause, of the present conflict. The forces of evil have been loosed in the world in a struggle between the pagan conception of a social order which ignores the individual and is based upon the doctrine of might, and a civilization based upon the Christian conception of the brotherhood of man with its regard for the sanctity of contractual relations and the sacredness of human personality. As President Roosevelt said on opening Congress on January the 4th, there comes a time in the affairs of men when they must prepare to defend not their homes alone, but the tenets of faith and humanity on which their churches, their governments, and their very civilization are founded. The defense of religion, of democracy, and of good faith among nations is all the same fight. To save one, we must make up our minds to save all. I need not review the events of the last few days. They must be present in the minds of all. 
Despite her unceasing efforts to preserve the freedom of Europe, the United Kingdom has today, in the determination to honor her pledges and meet her treaty obligations, become involved in war. This morning, the king, speaking to his peoples at home and across the seas, appealed to all to make their own the cause of freedom which Britain again has taken up. Canada has already answered that call. On Friday last, the government, speaking on behalf of the Canadian people, announced that in the event of the United Kingdom becoming engaged in war in the effort to resist aggression, they would, as soon as Parliament meets, seek its authority for effective cooperation by Canada at the side of Britain. In 1940, another election was held, and King enjoyed an even larger majority, seeing his Liberals rise six seats to a 179, while the National Government Party, a new party, formed the official opposition with 39 seats. In August of that year, King and Roosevelt signed an agreement that provided for the close cooperation of Canada and American forces. With Canada now at war, and with cooperation between government leaders, business leaders, and labour leaders, the Canadian economy and industrial production shifted to war. Unemployment fell extremely fast, and through industrial expansion and financial arrangements with the United States, Canada's economy began to boom. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, the Japanese-Canadian internment process would begin under the government of King. Japanese Canadians were viewed as enemy aliens, and they would have their property and businesses confiscated, and then moved to the interior of British Columbia to internment camps, or given the choice of going back to Japan. The Japanese Canadians would not become enfranchised citizens again until 1947, and would be barred from entering Canada as new immigrants until 1967. In all, 27,000 Japanese Canadians were detained without charge or trial. The RCMP and Major General Ken Stewart did give reports that said there was no risk from Japanese Canadians, and Stewart would say, quote, I cannot see that the Japanese Canadians constitute the slightest menace to national security. King ignored these reports, which falls in line with his earlier dealings and views on Asian Canadians. I did do an episode on Japanese-Canadian internment a while back, and you can find it on my website. The War Measures Act was also implemented, and in June of 1940, when Italy joined the Germans in the war, all designated Italian-Canadians and Canadian fascist sympathizers were seen as enemy aliens. By the end of that year, many were in internment camps around Canada. Their properties were also confiscated by the Office of the Custodian of Alien Property. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, King then allowed the Americans to take control of the Yukon in order to build the Alaska Highway. Throughout the war, King and Canada were mostly ignored by Winston Churchill, even though Canada was playing a huge role in the war effort, while also guarding the North Atlantic Ocean western half against German U-boats. During the war, King did rebuild the Royal Canadian Air Force as its own separate entity from the Royal Air Force, and he obtained the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan Agreement in December of 1939, which eventually trained half of the airmen of Canada, Britain, New Zealand and Australia during the war. It was in this situation that King introduced unemployment insurance to reassure Canadians who feared that the Great Depression would return after the war, and who wanted to have some sort of security if that was the case. In addition, he also introduced a family allowance in 1944. For King, the ultimate goal was national unity, and he realized that meant not forcing Canadians to follow one single vision, 
but to accommodate multiple, often conflicting, viewpoints. During the war, King hosted two conferences on Canadian soil, both in Quebec City, with British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and American President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. To open the momentous Quebec Conference, the Prime Ministers of Britain and Canada arrived to meet the President of the United States. The Right Honourable Winston Churchill and the Right Honourable William Lyon Mackenzie King motor to the Chateau Frontenac, scene of the parley. Britain's Prime Minister made the trip to Canada by boat rather than by plane. He is in the best of spirits and health throughout the sessions. Accompanied by full military and naval staffs, the President and the Premier go fully into such questions as strategy for applying the pincers to Japan from the south and southwest, the possible redefining of the terms under which an armistice may be obtained by either Germany or Japan, determination of the weight and distribution of the Allied forces that may be diverted to the Far East once Germany has fallen, and problems of finance, relief, and repatriation in conquered areas pending assumption of the responsibility by civilian authorities. Mrs. Churchill and Mrs. Roosevelt accompany their husbands. They both receive a cordial welcome from Canadians in the services. There's time between social engagements to look around the historic city of Quebec. Canada is proud to have the distinguished visitors as her guests. In 1944, King expanded the role of the National Research Council of Canada, moving into full-scale research into nuclear power and nuclear physics. He also moved the nuclear group from Montreal to Chalk River, Ontario, and established the Chalk River Nuclear Laboratories. As the war raged on and Germany continued to conquer more of Europe, there were calls for conscription, something King had said he would not do. His exact quote on the matter was, quote, Not necessarily conscription, but conscription if necessary. As a compromise, he introduced conscription for the defense of Canada only, rather than overseas. In 1942, a referendum was held, and a majority of Canadians were in favour of conscription for overseas service, while Quebec opposed. One poll showed that 70% of French Canadians opposed conscription, while 80% of English Canadians supported it. In 1944, high casualties and the decline in enlistment led to debates within the government about conscription. In November of 1944, King agreed to send some of the conscripted Home Defence's forces to Europe, and in all, 15,000 conscripts went to Europe, but only a few hundred actually saw any sort of combat. In a compromise to meet necessary overseas army needs, the Prime Minister at Ottawa yields on the conscription issue. The government announces an order in council authorizing the sending of 16,000 of Canada's 68,000 conscriptees overseas. Thus, additional reinforcements are immediately available for the Canadian Army's push forward to Berlin. In the 1945 election, the Liberals would lose 59 seats, while the Conservatives bounced back with 67 seats. The 118 seats were still enough for a majority, but it was far from what the Liberals had before. In that election, King lost his own riding, so William McDermott resigned from his safe seat and King won it in a by-election. Even though Canada had hosted two major Allied conferences, King, nor his generals and admirals, were invited to take part in any discussions about peace. In 1945, King helped to found the United Nations, with Canada becoming a founding member. 
He also attended the opening meeting in San Francisco, and he dismantled the wartime controls, including press censorship, and he began to work on social programs and work towards bringing Newfoundland into Confederation. In 1946, King would introduce the Canadian Citizenship Act, which created Canadian citizens and not British subjects. On June 3, 1947, King became the first Canadian citizen with the certificate number 0001. Ladies and gentlemen, I speak as a citizen of Canada on behalf... On behalf of all Canadians, I congratulate the new citizens who have just received their certificates on having become citizens of Canada. I welcome you into the full enjoyment of the rights of Canadian citizenship. Some of us who have received certificates tonight have enjoyed those rights all our lives, others only for a time. In homes throughout our land, thousands of our fellow citizens have been listening with pride to tonight's ceremony. I know that all would wish to join in these words of greeting and congratulation. Citizenship, citizenship is the highest honor a nation can confer upon an individual who has not been born into this heritage. Without citizenship, much else is meaningless. There is no country in the world of which its citizens have greater reason to be proud than Canada. There are older countries, there are larger countries, but no country holds today a higher place in the esteem of other nations. To be a citizen of Canada is to hold a passport which will be honored everywhere. Tonight's ceremony symbolizes in a very real way the character of Canadian nationhood. Those of our number who have received certificates of citizenship come from communities scattered through, widely scattered throughout Canada. Over the years, these widely scattered communities have been welded into a single country. We here, like the people of Canada generally, are of many different origins. In the past, divergent racial origins have repeatedly been a source of division. Moreover, newcomers, while serving ties with their, severing ties with their original homelands, have often felt no binding claim to the land of their adoption. Today, we have established a new conception of Canadian citizenship. The new conception of citizenship is designed to bridge the gaps created by geography and by racial descent. As a people, Canadians will be bound more closely together by the statutory recognition accorded our Canadian citizenship in this new year. Our unity and our strength will be increased by the deeper significance now given to our common citizenship. On January 20th, 1948, King resigned as Prime Minister and was succeeded by Louis Saint Laurent, who would serve for eight years as Prime Minister. Laurent was chosen at the first National Convention of the Liberal Party to be held since 1919. I am happy to have the opportunity of saying a few words to my fellow countrymen on this, my last day of office as Prime Minister of Canada. For this opportunity, I am indebted to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which has kindly arranged for a record to be made this afternoon here at my home, Laurier House. 
This will permit me to say just a word to you before my resignation as Prime Minister is accepted. At 11 o'clock this morning, I waited upon His Excellency the Governor General at Government House and informed Lord Alexander that for public and personal reasons, which were well known to him, I had felt for some time past that I should seek retirement from the office of Prime Minister and that I had come to him as His Majesty's representative to tender my resignation. I stated that I believed the present to be the most opportune time for the appointment of a successor to myself in the office of Prime Minister, and that I therefore hoped my resignation might be accepted. His Excellency, after inquiring as to whom I would recommend as my successor, said that he would send for Mr. Salaron immediately. Lord Alexander asked me, however, if I would continue to hold office until he had ascertained from Mr. Salaron if he were prepared to accept the responsibility of forming a ministry. At the moment, I am awaiting word of Mr. Salaron's readiness to assume the responsibilities of office. I shall then return to Government House to be informed by His Excellency of his acceptance of my resignation. I am particularly happy that in this interval of time, between the tender of my resignation and its acceptance, it has become possible for me to let you, my fellow citizens, in all parts of Canada, know that in my last hour of office, my thoughts are of the confidence you have extended to myself as Prime Minister and to the able colleagues with whom I have been fortunate enough at all times to be surrounded. I am thinking particularly of the measure of that confidence and of the exceptional opportunities of public service it has afforded me over so long a period of time. For all that this confidence has meant to me in my personal and public life, I can only thank you. But this I do with a grateful heart. Although within the next hour I shall cease to be a member of the government, I shall not cease to have our country's interests as much at heart as they have ever been. I shall continue to have the same interest in the future of our country and the well-being of its citizens that I have had over the past half century. Indeed, it is my belief that freed from the responsibilities of office, I may be able to render some form of useful service over a longer period of time than might otherwise have been possible. It is my earnest hope that Providence may vouchsafe me some time yet in which to be of service to our beloved country. Again, I thank you all. King would die on July 22, 1950. Upon his death, the Globe and Mail wrote, quote, Next to Confederation itself, no single factor has had more significance in the shaping of national affairs than the career of Mackenzie King. Looking back on his life before his death, King would write in his diary, quote, The path to success lies along lines of being true to certain teachings and right activities. Integrity, goodwill, initiative, disinterestedness versus self-seeking. On Saturday night, the former Prime Minister of Canada, William Lyon Mackenzie King, died at his summer home outside Ottawa. Blair Fraser, Ottawa editor of Maclean's magazine, tells of Mr. King as he was known by the reporters of the Parliamentary Press Gallery. 
One thing in today's papers may have puzzled readers a bit. Ottawa reporters have been telling everybody for years what a recluse Mr. King was, how hard it was to get to see him, how seldom he met the press. And today, every paper that I've seen is full of personal recollections of him, reminiscences of private and even intimate conversations. Well, both reports are honest. The contradiction is more apparent than real. It was hard to see Mr. King. You couldn't manage it casually. He never did what Mr. Sanoran did at lunchtime today, wander into the Rideau Club all by himself and sit down at the nearest table. You saw Mr. King by appointment, and rarely. But you did see him, if you wanted to, and had a purpose in it. Except for his old friend, Senator Charlie Bishop, Mr. King had no intimates among reporters here, but he would on occasion give a reporter a private interview. We've all had them at one time or another. And in those off-the-record interviews, he'd talk with amazing frankness. Maybe that was why the interviews themselves were so memorable. We were so used to his Hansard style, the ponderous prose, the elaborate networks of qualification and reservation. Well, in private, he'd say the same thing in substance, but he'd say it briefly and sharply and very often wittily. The other thing that made him memorable was personal charm. In public, he was cold and remote, a little inhuman. But face to face, he could make you feel that you were the one person in Canada he really wanted to see, that any remarks he made were for your ears only. You came away remembering a firm handshake, a warm smile, a remarkably clear, alert eye, and a tremendous impression of vigor, both physical and intellectual. In Ottawa today, there are not many mourners in the deep and true sense. Most of Mr. King's immediate family and many of his dearest friends are already dead. But the secondary mourners are legion. Not merely dozens, but hundreds in this city feel this is in some degree a personal loss that they had some personal bond, something akin to friendship, with the greatest Canadian of his time. This is Blair Fraser reporting News Roundup from Ottawa. Upon his death, King bequeathed his private retreat of Kingsmere, Quebec, to the government, and it has since been known as Gatineau Park. His summer home now serves as the official residence of the Speaker of the House of Commons of Canada. In 1974, Dennis Lee mentioned King in his book Alligator Pie as the subject of a children's poem which goes as follows. William Lyon Mackenzie King. He sat in the middle and played with string. He loved his mother like anything. William Lyon Mackenzie King. No episode about King can be complete without talking about his interest in spiritualism. As a lifelong Presbyterian, he was not into spiritualism as a religion, but he believed in life after death and he saw it as a fact because he believed he had communicated with the dead through mediums throughout his life, including speaking to his long-dead dogs, his mother, brother and sister, and others such as Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Sir Wilfrid Laurier. All of this was unknown during his life, but it was only after his death that King's interest in spiritualism became known to the general public. Others he claimed to have talked to included Leonardo da Vinci and his grandfather. After his first seance, King would write, quote, this is something too wonderful for words. It is all part of divine leading, I believe. Helen Hughes, a medium from Glasgow, would sit with King as a medium for several years whenever he made trips to Britain. She would say in 1951, quote, It was as if he had his mother living over here in Britain. What would any son do if he came here on business? He'd look her up. He'd want to see her and talk to her. He didn't want advice about public affairs for he knew more about them than she did. He wanted to know how she was. He wanted to talk to her about family matters. 
It is important to show the distinction that he was never reported to have looked for advice on political matters during seances, but more to speak with those who had passed on and who he missed. Hughes would go on to say, quote, He was warned, at least three years before he died, his mother told him he was doing too much, his heart wouldn't stand it. He took her advice in the end, but not soon enough. Interestingly, during a seance with a medium named Miss Cummins, in which she apparently communicated with Roosevelt, he was told, quote, Don't retire, stay on the job, your country needs you there. Hughes would also talk about how King would speak to his beloved dogs. She would say to him, quote, Your sister is here and she has a beautiful dog with her. The dog doesn't seem to have been very long over there. King would tell her that the night before Pat died, his watch fell off his bedside table for no reason, and he found it face down in the morning, stopped at 4.20 a.m. He would say, quote, I am not psychic, but I knew then, as if a voice were speaking to me, that Pat would die before 24 hours went by. According to King that night, his dog got out of its basket with his last effort, climbed onto the bed, and died. When King looked at his watch, it was 4.20 a.m. One night in early 1929, King awoke after having nocturnal visions, and he called his personal secretary and dictated his account. This document was then sent off to King's medium in Kingston for interpretation. She told him that honours would be coming to him, and a trip to England was about to happen. She signed it, Your Most Sincere and True Spiritual Friend and Advisor. Mercy Fillimore, who was the secretary of the London Spiritual Alliance, also stated that King never sought spiritual guidance in affairs of state. She would say, quote, Mr. King was an investigator. He did accept the spirit hypothesis, and he had the courage to say so, but he never ceased to be critical in appraising evidence. He was a highly intelligent man with shrewd judgment, and to say he consulted mediums for advice and statecraft is preposterous. It is also outrageous and insult to his memory. Following his death, King was honoured throughout Canada. In 1997, a group of historians ranked him first out of the first 20 Prime Ministers in Canadian history. He would be named a person of national historic significance in 1968, and was the only Prime Minister along with Sir Wilfrid Laurier to serve in office during the reigns of three Canadian monarchs. Since 1975, his image has been on the Canadian $50 bill, and several locations are named for King, including Mackenzie King Bridge. His boyhood home is now the Woodside National Historic Site. Overall, considering the length of time he served as Prime Minister, there are a surprisingly limited number of places or honours for King in Canada. Likely, this is because of his reserved nature and lack of political charisma. King never wrote any memoirs, but upon his death, the diary he had written from 1893 to 1950 comprised several volumes. Stacked in a row, those volumes spanned 7 meters and 50,000 manuscript pages of typed transcribed text of 7.5 million words. In a Canadian Gallup poll done in 1946 asking Canadians to choose what person living today do you admire, only 8% of respondents picked King. In 1998, when a memorial to the Quebec Conference was created, it did not feature King, because it was felt that he was merely the host between Churchill and Roosevelt. A lot of this was because King did not have a commanding presence, nor excellent speaking skills, and he did not shine when on the radio. He had very few close friends, never married, and many saw him as cold and tactless. While he never married, he had several close female friends, and when he hosted an event, he would always hire a hostess. 
Nonetheless, he was skilled at public policy and was a workaholic who understood the complexities of Canadian society. On top of that, he did lead Canada through two of the most difficult periods in the 20th century, the Great Depression and the Second World War. I hope you enjoyed that episode on William Lyne Mackenzie King, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And again, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx, just like all of these wonderful patrons have. And I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Diane Wade, Lori Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Erin O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rois, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. As well, you can find me on Facebook. Just search for Canadian History X. Remember, that's E-H-X. I'm on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And don't forget, you can find me on Instagram. Just search for Bairdo37. Information comes from Botanica, Juneau Beach Centre, Library and Archives Canada, Wikipedia, Maclean's, Biography, UpperCanadaHistory.ca, Toronto's People, A History of Kitchener, Ontario, The Chinese in Ontario, The Toronto Star, and The Peterborough Examiner. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.